0: Good afternoon. This is Law and Behold on the bigger picture. I'm Julia Jacobs. Law and Behold is, of course, our ongoing series, which aims to arm Malaysians with constitutional literacy, done in collaboration with the Malaysian Bar, the University of Malaya's Faculty of Law, and the Malaysian Center for Constitutionalism and Human Rights. So, today's episode, we're going to tackle the right to life and liberty in relation to the right to representation under Article 5 of the Federal Constitution. We're going to tie all of these in with current developments in the country on the abolishment of the mandatory death penalty, also, how the government Government are mulling ways to improve legal aid, legal aid services for criminal cases and the proposal to enact a special law to provide free legal aid to the people. Joining me to discuss all of this are Frida Husni. She's the Chief Human Rights Strategist at the Malaysian Centre for Constitutionalism and Human Rights. Also joining us today, Abdul Rashid Ismail. He's a lawyer and the former president of the National Human Rights Society of Malaysia, or HAKAM. Welcome both of you. How are you today? Good, good. How are you, Juliet? Very well, good. thank you. How are you, Rashid?
2: Um, I'm good, Gillette. Thank you for having me here today. Thank you so much.
0: Yes, lovely. Uh, first time uh, on the show. We're really, really happy to have you join us. Uh, and I understand you're in Taipei actually discussing uh, for a conference now on the death penalty, aren't you?
2: Yes, that's right. That's right. I am in Taipei. Okay. Yeah, and yeah so we're going to...
0: Okay, so we're going to be tackling some of these uh, topics. So, but first of all, let's just get to some some of the most recent news, I suppose. Yeah, uh, just earlier this week, the minister in the Prime Minister's Department for Law and Institutional Reforms, Datuk Shri Azalina Othman Syed, uh, said that a comprehensive study is being done on the proposed Public Defenders Act, aimed at improving legal aid services for criminal cases in the country. Right. So, you know, access to justice is or should be a fundamental right in a democratic society. But we know the reality is that there are problems of access to justice for many of us here. Um, Maybe we can just start off by discussing what the right to representation is uh, and is it actually mentioned anywhere in the federal constitution?
1: Um, I can start uh, a quick one and then uh, Rashid can come in. Uh, So if we look in our federal constitution and uh, particularly part two, uh, specifically on the provisions regarding our fundamental liberties, Article 5 says that uh, no person shall be deprived of his life or personal liberty, uh, except if the law provides. So, um, when you look further in Article 5, 5 5.3 actually says that if someone is arrested, that someone has to be informed as soon as uh, possible of his ground of arrest, why he was arrested, and that person shall be allowed to consult and be defended by a lawyer of his choice, Uh his or her choice. Uh, So, essentially, when we talk about right to life and liberty, what comes together with that is the right to representation uh, because you're talking about someone's liberty here, someone's liberty is at stake, someone's life is at stake if you're talking about offences that carries a death penalty which I'm sure we will we'll talk further and that is why it's important that this person's right to representation yeah, uh, 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 is afforded to that person.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, Rashid, anything you wanted to add to that?
2: Yeah, if we look at Article 5.3, there are two parts to it, right? First is the right to be informed. Second is the, uh, the ability, the right to be able to consult and be defended by a legal practitioner of the person's choice. So we have, our focus is more on uh, the right to be uh, defended by a legal practitioner of his own, her own choice. Mm-hmm. So the, the thing is this, uh, each person has that right. And it is a fundamental right because this is to ensure that the balance between the state and the individual, they are not compromised. So, because you think about it in this fashion, the state with the might, with the police, with the prosecutor, there is an imbalance. So, having a legal practitioner provides some semblance of equality. But... It is whether the uh, it is totally equal or otherwise is a format for us to discuss further in this particular uh, interview today.
0: Okay, and and that is actually my next question. You know, would you guys say that there is a dichotomy between I guess formal justice and functional justice uh, here in Malaysia?
1: Hmm. <laughs> well, yeah, it really ties back to what uh, Rashid just mentioned earlier. Whether or not, when we talk about uh, equality, uh, in terms of uh, accessing that justice, whether or not it's it's truly it's truly equality that's at work uh, that we are seeing. Because uh, let's say even if you talk about uh, provisions of the government uh, that the government is doing uh, for legal aid, for example, mm-hmm. right, and if through the legal aid you are afforded a lawyer, is that lawyer uh, by your own choice yeah how, how do we you know how do we uh, interpret that so in this case you see that because this person has limited financial means that the the choice of that person to uh which lawyer uh, he or she wants to represent uh uh represent them uh, would be uh, limited so in that case there is you know there is a question uh, there is also an argument that says that if you look at article 53 it does not go so far as to guarantee that access it only says that you know you have the right to be uh, defended by a lawyer uh, of your own choice but um, do we what about in a case in which you cannot afford mm. uh, that right and and e what about a case in which uh, if you want to access the legal aid but you are not qualified to access that legal aid what ha- would happen in that uh, case so in when we talk about formal and functional, uh, there is definitely a further discussion to be had. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. Rashid, anything you want to add okay. to
2: that? I, I think when we discuss about this issue, what, pe- what uh, people generally do not look into is the substantive equality. We always talk about formal equality, right? Mm-hmm. Formal equality means that on paper, it is equal. But the concept of substantive equality, we rarely talk about it. But what is important is substantive quality. In the context of legal representation, one part is that, look, uh, those who are in the system generally, they are not well educated. That, you know, when you go into a system where it's all formal languages, how will they deal with it within the system, right? Are they able to deal with these differences? Mm -hmm. And secondly, in in terms of quality of lawyers, they are lawyers, they are different quality, right? And and thirdly, also, when they are given representation, would the representation be equal in terms of how a, a well-paid lawyer do the job? So these are issues, I think, uh, the imperfections of our criminal justice system that we must address in Malaysia as we move forward towards uh, being a more uh, equitable and fairer society.
0: Okay. And so, okay, so yes, we know that, you know, due to many circumstances, perhaps poverty, underdevelopment, uh, you know, many different aspects that uh, affect people's access to justice. So, not everyone can afford a lawyer or a good lawyer in that sense, right? What other uh, avenues are actually available? You know, what legal aid bodies are there in Malaysia, for example, uh, that we can choose from?
1: Uh, There are a few uh, that, while currently existing uh, in uh, our system, and some of these uh are, don't just limit their services to only criminal uh, law. Mm -hmm. And even with some that do provide services in terms of uh, criminal cases, uh, it's also uh, limited. So that can be, you know, one of the challenges. So some of the avenues uh, that we have in Malaysia right now is one that is provided by the government, what it's called the Legal Aid Department or JBG, Jabatan Bantuan Guaman. So, uh, So that's one. Uh, and this uh, particular jabatan is governed by an act, the uh, Legal Aid uh, mm-hmm. Act, right? And then uh, next, we also have uh, what is called the National Legal Aid Foundation, Yayasan Bantuan Kebangsaan. And this was set up as a company. Okay. Uh, yeah, uh, not under the act. Uh, so, that's uh, that this one is uh, run uh, or rather you have uh, lawyers, private lawyers who would then uh, represent cases under this uh, foundation, uh, and then be paid by the foundation with uh, a minimal uh, fixed okay. Uh, amount. Okay. Uh, then we also have legal aid centres, and these are run by uh, the bar council uh, and the you know the different um, state bars. Uh, and how are they funded? It is through the uh, annual uh, fee that lawyers pay mm. as subscription uh, of their uh, membership. Okay. And then we also have universities who run a uh, legal aid clinic. Uh, although I should put a disclaimer here that uh, I've I've been involved in uh, some of this initiative by uh, my alma mater, and uh, yes, they also provide uh, advices. Uh, but it, often it will come with a disclaimer that they are not they are not uh, you know legal practitioners. So you know you can give advice, and it's up to you what to you know uh, make of it. And then uh, we also have uh, services run by NGO. Uh, and for example, you have uh, Tenaganita. Uh, you have uh, organization uh, like uh, I think it's called Shan Organization uh, providing advices for uh, migrants and refugees community. Uh, Sisters in Islam they run the uh, Nisa. Uh, and then uh, Suaram uh, Asylum Access. Uh, so they they cater for different different uh, groups of uh, uh, of uh, communities. Uh, I would say uh, because the government uh, uh, government provided uh, services don't cover for non-Malaysian. Mm. it's these NGO and the Legal Aid Centre uh, that uh, would uh, take up their cases. Okay, um, Rashid, anything
0: you wanted to add to that before I just uh, move on to the next question?
2: I think I think uh, covered everything. I just want to add one thing: mm. in uh, cases involving capital punishment, mm. for those who are who can't afford lawyers, there is a, a a scheme called assigned counsel scheme. Okay. All right, the court will appoint uh, lawyers for them, uh, for the for citizens as well as for foreign nationals.
0: Okay. Okay, that's great. And because, you know, that actually was my next question was, uh, you know, are there any gaps in the existing legal aid mechanisms in Malaysia? Because I know, like, uh, like, for example, I was reading a, an article in Malaysia Kini where they pointed out that the Malaysian bar provides aid to all those who need it before and during their trial. Uh, the system run by the courts is also available to all, but does not cover pre-trial procedures like police arrest, questioning and bail. I mean, yeah, any gaps that you'd like to uh, bring up?
1: So yes, it is what you uh, what you mentioned earlier. So when it comes to court-appointed counsel scheme for mm-hmm. uh, capital punishment cases, yeah, mm. uh, at the point where a lawyer is appointed, usually the arrest, the the uh, all of the investigation would have been over and done with already. Right, and this is crucial because it's. At those period that you know you're talking about evidence, you're talking about you know, uh uh you're talking about uh, statements and investigative process whether it meets the uh, fair trial uh, standard, all of that would be too late already by the time it reaches uh, the trial, yeah. right? Uh, the trial stage. Uh, so that's uh, one challenges. Uh, I mentioned earlier means test. So. Uh, in many of these services, they are means tests in which you have to uh, then qualify up to a certain amount of how much salary you have per month or per mm-hmm. per year, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and. The means tests differ from which services you go to. Mm. Uh, and if I were a person, I think this would be a very confusing system for me to access, isn't it? Yeah. So that's one. And then I mentioned earlier that uh, where it's a uh, uh, government-provided uh, uh, initiatives such as the JBJ, Legal Aid Department, and Russo National Legal Aid Foundation, it's not available for uh, non-Malaysian. And uh, Rashid mentioned there's a perception, well, it's... It, some say it's a matter of perception. Some say it's also a challenge that one needs to look at, which is the quality of lawyers. Uh, the quality of lawyers, uh, because since this is you know considered legal aid, so the, there's a perception that the lawyers who take up these cases uh, may not give it the fullest attention and effort uh, in representing uh, the client. Right. Uh, so is that uh, as well. All of this put together, what it, Translated into is that situation, for example, one person who wants to access the legal aid, say, legal aid department, only to be told that, oh, you're not qualified. You go to National Legal Aid Foundation. Oh, we don't do these cases. You go to Legal Aid Centre. You know, things like that. Uh, so these are some of the challenges uh, that, well, the members of the public face right now in accessing these services. Mm-hmm.
0: And, and Rashid, you know, I mean, I'm sure you've also encountered some some cases. You know, what are you? Th- what do you think are some of the gaps?
2: Okay. I mean, I'll share my experience uh, in terms of dealing with those who are facing with death penalty. Okay. So, most of the time when an individual is arrested, uh, they're arrested and rarely they're allowed lawyers. Mm. At first, or they can't afford lawyers. And even if they can afford lawyers, maybe lawyers are not given access. uh, They're not given access to lawyers when they were being investigated, right? So, therein lies the problem because, uh, like Fedafz has said, this is the most crucial time for any person facing a charge because this is a time when if they have a defense, this is the time that they are require legal advice. What is the defense that they need to put or put in their statement? Because the court nowadays have taken the view that if a person does not put Uh, Or insert or state their defence at the first opportunity. Whatever they say subsequent to it, when they are called to defend themselves, that is merely an afterthought.
0: Oh dear! So
2: even though it's true, even though it's a fact, but because you see, not everyone understand the legal process. This is where the problem with uh, uh, you know those who are not well educated, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, and and they don't know what to say, what what answer to give and and without legal representation, it is a matter of life or death and, and this is where I think, uh, you know, the, where we have a real challenge in terms of getting a very uh, fair uh, access to justice or fair trial because ultimately it relates to the trial right. because even though at the arrest stage, it impacts on the trial. So it's a very impo- important conversation that we're having today. As a society, yeah.
0: Okay. Um, let's just go for a quick break, uh, you guys. When we come back, I just want to talk uh, again, you know, going back to the government's plan to uh, potentially enact that Public Defenders Act. Let's talk about, you know, what that might look like. I'm speaking today to Fredawas Husni. She's the Chief Human Rights Strategist at the Malaysian Center for Constitutionalism and Human Rights. Also joining us, Abdul Rashid Ismail. He's a lawyer and the former president of the National Human Rights Society of Malaysia, or Hakam, where we're talking about legal aid and also the right to life and liberty on, uh, on our show today. It is, of course, law and behold. We'll have more after this this. this quick break. Keep it right here on BFM 89.9. Welcome back, this is Law & Behold on The Bigger Picture. I'm Juliet Jacobs. With me today, Frida Husni, the Chief Human Rights Strategist at the Malaysian Centre for Constitutionalism and Human Rights and Abdul Rashid Ismail, a lawyer and the former president of the National Human Rights Society of Malaysia or HAKAM. It's another episode of Law & Behold, of course, our ongoing series which which aims to arm Malaysians with constitutional literacy done in collaboration with the Malaysian Bar, the University of Malaysia's Faculty of Law and the Malaysian Centre for Constitutionalism and Human Rights. Today, we're talking about the right to life and liberty we're also talking about legal aid. We will also be talking about the abolishment of the mandatory death penalty a little bit later. But I'm um, just going back to what we were talking about before the break. So, uh, you know, as we mentioned, the Minister and the Prime Minister's Department, Datuk Sri Azalina Othman, said that there's a government plan, right, to potentially enact a Public Defenders Act. So what might that actually look like, right? I mean, uh, you know, what do you expect to see in there uh, in relation to the right to representation, which we were discussing before the break?
1: Well, um, earlier, we talked about the different challenges in our current uh, legal aid services. Mm-hmm. Uh, so how I see it, this Public Defenders Act, if if we decide to have it and if we do have it, then it should aim towards uh, addressing these challenges. Uh, in other words, streamlining all of the different services Yeah, so that you uh, have members of the public uh, accessing one center for example and knowing it, and it wouldn't take that person you know that much time to then find out which services this person should go to you know yeah. uh, so that that is one and the whole idea about coming up with an act or you know a public defender's office uh, for example is not unique um, in other countries uh, you have uh, in Australia for example they have what it's called public defenders in India uh, it's called National Legal Services Authority, uh, and, and in the UK also they set up an uh, Office of uh, Public Defender Service. So it's not uh, it's not new. Uh, what uh, I would like to see is how uh, all of these different services that's currently provided be streamlined. Yeah, uh, bearing in mind the challenges, bearing in mind the different uh, means tests, bearing in mind the possibility that with the current means test of these different services, they are people that fall through the crack, mm, right? Mm. They cannot go here, they cannot go there and uh, they are not uh, qualified here but they are also not qualified there. So, how does this address uh, those issues? And also, how, if we have an Act, how would this new Act uh, guarantees or contribute towards wider coverage of the legal aid uh, services? Because, the thing is, as we see uh, with the current system, uh, if it's provided uh, through the Legal Aid uh, Centre, for example, or through universities or through NGO, these are all very resource limited. Yeah. Um, yeah? yeah. And so coverage is also limited uh, as much as uh, their, their resources uh, allow. So how do this act addresses those challenges? That's what I would like to see.
0: Okay. And uh, and for you, Rashid, you know, I mean, how, how, what are your thoughts? You know, how are you reacting to this news? Any reservations at all?
2: Okay. I mean, of course, there there are many issues to be considered in this particular conversation, Mm
0: -hmm.
2: but two items which uh, to me is important, right? Independence. Number two is the kind of defense that lawyers are permitted to take. So why I see independence is, is this. Public Defender's Office ultimately will be funded by the government. Right. Okay. And if they are going to defend individuals facing criminal matters they will ultimately go against the government technically right yes okay right? Yep. yeah mm-hmm. so and that is why i raised the, the issue of independence how the those who are being employed by the public defenders office will deal with issue on independence because the funder and the and uh, will I, you know, we perhaps have some say in the defense that they can take, and I. And if that is the case, then it defeats the whole purpose mm. because I think, given the problem that we have in our country in, in terms of uh, substantive inequality, I think uh, this organization, if it's going to be created, must be totally independent, right? And and the lawyers are permitted. To undertake a robust type of defence for the client, because if we look at the example in 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 Singapore, they have a threshold for what kind of defence that they can undertake. So, and and if that is the case, uh, I I don't think it should be replicated here in Malaysia, because I think uh, you know having this kind of system. The lawyers, defend lawyers, are, should be entitled to take the defence that they think is suitable for the client. Mm. And it must be a robust one. And that is my concern, having this kind of organisation.
0: Okay, I think, yeah, I mean, that's a very legitimate concern, right? Uh, yeah, um, And, you know, I was also reading that in ensuring the right to representation, there is what is called the Court Appointed Counsel Scheme for Death Penalty Cases, right? Maybe one of you can help explain what this scheme is about.
2: Okay so uh, as i mentioned earlier uh, for those individuals who face a death sentence or a capital charge is being preferred against uh, the such person uh, if they can't afford a lawyer the court will appoint a lawyer right and this appointment usually come when the person is charged in the high, in the high court so and and in this system uh, i think you know, the the, the lawyer is given a a free hand as to how they want to fight the case. And I think that's fair. Okay, But the only uh, thing that I think the gap in this particular, and I'm not saying that is a court's fault because they are funded in this fashion, but what I would like to see is that how we can provide uh, help for those who are uh, going to be charged for capital cases to have access to counsel from the
0: moment of arrest. was mm-hmm. uh, anything you wanted to add to that?
1: Well, uh, when it comes to uh, uh, death penalty cases, uh, linking it back to Article Five, you are talking about someone's right to life uh, and liberty. It's a constitutional right. It's a uh, you know uh, uh, rights uh, that is uh, universally uh, universally uh, recognized. And so and so the a situation where someone. Uh, for the fact that that person cannot afford uh, a lawyer and it's a case involving his life that's at stake, uh, that to me cannot be accepted and that to me is in itself a human rights violation. Uh, And so the state should take up the responsibility and that is why, you know, hence uh, we have the scheme, uh, which to me is a a good partnership between uh, the Malaysian Bar and uh, the judiciary uh, in ensuring this right to representation is guaranteed when it comes to capital uh, punishment uh, cases. And uh, I agree, I echo what uh, Rashid said earlier about uh, the limitation uh, of that right. I, I think, I, I mean, I've been in a couple of conferences and discussion. this has always been one of the themes that repeats itself and it should be uh, addressed urgently.
0: Okay. And, you know, while we're on the topic of the death penalty, right, so we do know, of course, a crucial step towards the abolition of the death penalty in Malaysia uh, came after the bills uh, on abolishing the mandatory death penalty were adopted in Parliament, uh, you know, just this year, March and April, we saw that happening. Uh, would, Would you guys like to discuss the significance
2: of this? All right. So there are several bills being passed by both Houses, Parliament and the Senate. First relates to the... Abolition of mandatory death sentence. Second is uh, the removal of uh, natural life in in, sy- in in the punishment system. Yeah. Uh, then thirdly is uh, the what do we do with the those who have been sentenced to death, the death row prisoners, right? And and uh, so let's take one I- item at a time. Okay. So when it comes to mandatory sentence, uh, it is the first step towards abolition because I think the uh, I'm of the view that the problem with mandatory sentence is it is unfair right? because you do not treat somebody uh, an individual to take into account their peculiar circumstances a person may have uh, mental health issues a person may have uh, may not be deserving of death right so I think it is a very important bill because it is a, a, a crucial step and Studies have shown, mandatory death sentence is unfair mm-hmm. and it is the right thing that the government is doing and we we support what the government has done. And the second uh, amendment relates to the removal of natural life. So what does natural life mean? Uh, natural life mean, basically means that a person, uh, once it is sentenced to natural life, they be there forever. And this is problematic because the, where is it uh, the purpose of rehabilitating that rehabilitating that person? If you are going to just be in prison forever, and it is similar to that sentence,
0: mm.
2: right? Mm-hmm. So I think that is a problem. And I think what the government has done by uh, making it for a term, then it's far more uh, acceptable. Then at least people can actually, I mean, having... I mean, they, there is hope, because sometimes the worst thing is that not to give people hope, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Because yes, they have they have committed crimes, and they must be punished. We are not even at all saying that they should not be punished, but we must uh, they must be punished humanly and with dignity. Okay. Lastly, when it comes to uh, resentencing, so. The effect of mandatory health sentence, mandatory death sentence, is that you do not take into account of their mitigating circumstances. So, if you do not take into account their mitigating circumstances when they were sentenced, right? This is the opportunity. That is why the government is conferring the jurisdiction to the federal court to hear the mitigating circumstances of these individuals who have been sentenced to death, mandatorily. Mm-hmm okay
1: right. okay hopefully uh yes so uh what's in the media um I think since last month when it was passed in the parliament has been mandatory death penalty is you know it's, it's now we are we are getting rid of it uh yes uh but what many may not realize is that there are some uh offenses some uh offenses in which the uh death penalty uh, punishment is is done away completely mm-hmm. uh, and it's uh it's to be uh, committed into imprisonment for some offences. Uh, so it's not just doing away with mandatory uh, death penalty, but the doing, doing away completely of the death penalty punishment for some offences. So that was also in some of the law uh, that was passed. Uh, and uh, yes, I echo what uh, Rashid uh, said earlier about uh, the harshness of mandatory uh, death penalty. I also want to add that when we had mandatory death penalty it did not afford it did not afford the opportunity for substantive justice to come into the picture okay see because you the, the judiciary basically their hands are tied they cannot take into account mitigating circumstances and so if you were talking about you know the true uh, meaning of justice true equality uh, then, you know, substantive equality, then, you know, it's, it's really timely that you, you finally do away with mandatory uh, death penalty. Yeah.
0: Okay. And I just want to ask this because, you know, when I was doing my reading, I, uh, this is some of the things that I came, up, uh, I, that came, up, I came across, you know, uh, on the topic of mandatory death penalty. You know, does it actually run foul of the federal constitution, right? Because, um, they, you know, some arguments were saying that Article 5.1 says that the right to life and personal liberty is not absolute and can be taken away. Uh, what are your thoughts on that?
2: I certainly think that this is, from my perspective, uh, I think mandatory death sentence is unconstitutional. Okay. Notwithstanding, there is a decision uh, Lao Ki Hu, uh, which was decided in 1983, as well as uh, an, a more recent case in uh, in 2020, in the case of Letitia Bosman, mm. where a, a majority of the federal court judges decided that a decision to have a mandatory their sentence is for the for Parliament to decide. Yeah. But what I want to highlight during our conversation today is the fact that for the very first time, the federal court, in, in the case of Letitia Bosman they have decided that in a, in a dissenting judgment that mentally their sentence is unconstitutional mm. because it is disproportionate and it does not take into account the individual circumstances of the, the, the person. So I... Prefer uh, the minority decision uh, by Justice Nalini Padmanathan, and I think that is a very enlightened judgment, and it is in accord with uh, the the jurisprudence in other countries, for example, in the Caribbean states and even in Africa, and everywhere in the world have declared that mandatory the sentence is unconstitutional. So I think uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, I. Uh, we were disappointed with the judgment. Uh, I was part. I was one of the lawyers who argued the case, and but uh, now that the government has abolished mandatory the sentence, and it is a recognition by the government that look, mandatory the sentence is unfair, mm. and that is uh, a very significant step in terms of recognition. The mandatory sentence violates Article Five One.
0: Okay. Yeah, yeah. Alfredo, any thoughts on that?
1: Uh, yes. So, um, as what Rashid said, there are several cases who have tried to challenge uh, the death penalty. Uh, there was one case in uh, eighty eight, the Che Omar cheksu which was a Supreme Court case. Uh, also, uh, sought to challenge. Uh, although the angle that they took was quite interesting, they took an Islamic <laughs> Islamic law challenge uh, Islamic law angle in the sense that because Article Three says uh, that Islam is a religion of federation, then we have to uh, look at uh, what Islamic law says, oh, and uh, mandatory death penalty is against. <laughs> it's against uh, Islamic law. Anyway, the the court was not with that. You know, uh, with the council arguing for that uh, argument. Uh, but what's interesting in that case, I thought uh, at the right at the end of the judgment, uh, the court actually says that when we talk about morality uh, and, and law, and this is secular country, so you know. Uh, uh, I, that cannot be taken into account. And the court ended it with saying that perhaps that argument should be addressed at other forums or seminars or or perhaps the politicians and parliament. And until the law and system is changed, we have no choice but to proceed as we are doing today. And the law is changed. Yes. But I thought that was like quite a full <laughs> <was so> circle. <laughs> and it is also reflective of the, the kind of society that we want, the kind of approach that we want whenever we talk about the criminal justice system. You know, um, um, we are always so hell-bent on making it a punitive society, uh, not taking into account that everyone has different, different background, everyone has intersecting uh, uh, situations. Uh, and maybe we are talking from a position of privilege. Why don't we, you know, move, move it away from uh, uh, punitive to a more rehabilitative uh, approach? If we talk about, say, let's say the drug issues, you know, a couple of years back, we wanted to have death penalty in our system. Part of it was because we want to show that we are, you know, hard uh, when it comes to drug uh, drug crimes. But uh, we also don't fail to take into account that many of those who are using drugs, they are patients. These are medical issues, uh, and we should be looking at it from that angle rather than a criminal or uh, that's you know uh, that's at large uh, doing.
2: Drug offences. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. Can I just add to what Bedaus just said? Of course. I think what is uh, lacking is that the idea that we need to treat even uh, you know uh, those who have been condemned with some dignity, right? And I think that must be moving forward because the standard of decency has evolved right? And society is maturing to a stage where we are looking at how we can treat people with more uh, humanely. And I think what I I totally agree with uh, what Fridaos is saying, because ultimately we need to have a total rethink. It's not just the penal system, but also the way that how the prison is run, and there are a lot of good people in the prison department that want change. And I think, I think the government should, you know, should take a very proactive step to assist uh, the prison department to to be able to reform. Uh, you know, they talk about it in 2018, but until now, nothing much has been done. And I think we need to uh, urgently look into that.
0: Okay. But, you know, I mean, this has been one positive step, right? Uh, We we can definitely agree on that. And, you know, just to sort of conclude, I guess, guys, you know, with these new changes in the law, uh, for those individuals who are currently on death row, uh, what will happen to them?
2: Okay, so what will happen is that uh, they have to submit an application and the uh, federal court would then... uh, uh, decide on uh, their fate as to life or death. Right. So this this is what they call the resentencing uh, process. Okay. So to be resentenced because they were deprived, they were constitutionally deprived of the right to mitigating, and now they are given the right to mitigate uh, to mitigate their uh, individual circumstances. And I think that we have around eight hundred and forty Darrow prisoners. Hmm. So the federal court is going to be very busy next few years, dealing with this kind of application. But the question that I have is that what is the kind of support that the government is going to give to those who are going to be resentenced because we need mental health experts, we need social worker to investigate their uh, circumstances. And and these are the things that the government must provide in order to have a very meaningful uh, mitigating uh, Situation, right? If they are not provided with all this uh, support to show that they are, uh, they have, you know, to investigate whether they have mental health issues or whether they, uh, what are the uh, personal circumstances they are in in terms of their family background, why did they commit crime in the first place? Then they will not have a meaningful recensing process. And I think this is a very, this is what we talk about substantive equality, right? At the beginning of the conversation that we had just now. So I think to expect these individuals to come out with all this uh, report, it is almost like some of them, they, they can't afford any legal fees. And some of them don't even have family members who still talk to them, right? Yeah. So are we still going to see inequality in treatment in terms of how they are being resentenced. And and this is what, you know, we have to watch this again next time. Yeah,
1: Yeah, definitely. Alfie All right, yeah. So uh, to add to what uh, Rashid just mentioned, yes, we have 840 uh, at the last count uh, of uh, individuals who uh, are on death row who have... Basically, uh, who have gone through all of the appeal process and are now on death row. Uh, We have uh, 400 over individuals uh, on death row uh, whose appeal process are not yet disposed Mm. of. So, they're still undergoing that. So, right now, the focus is on that 840 uh, persons. Uh, And so as we talk about right to representation at the uh, uh, earlier part of this conversation, we should also look into the quality of that representation. Uh, And uh, that is uh, one of the things that Rashid and I are working on and how do we ensure uh, an effective defence representation, especially when we talk about uh, capital punishment uh, cases. That is one. Uh, And then second, I I think... one other question that uh, lawyers, legal practitioners are also eagerly waiting is when it comes to mitigating or resentencing, the resentencing process itself, what are the guidelines? What are the criteria? What should be presented? What should not be presented? What would come as... Uh, An acceptable uh, argument that the court would take into account in deciding what the new sentences would be. That is not in the new law and uh, I think all of us are currently waiting for that (laughs) uh, uh, to further ensure effective defence representation.
0: I'll end here thank you okay all right well thank you so much you know both of you uh but you know the, it's it's you know heartening to hear that you are having these conversations and you are working on this and the government are open to uh to I guess you know these feedback sessions and these these talks right and uh yeah okay all right well well we'll definitely keep an eye on this and we'll have you guys back on uh with further developments but thank you so much uh for joining me today I was speaking to Fridawas Husni chief human rights strategist at the Malaysian Center for constitutionalism and human rights and Abdul Rashid Ismail a lawyer and former president of the National Human Rights Society of Malaysia or HAKAM we were discussing uh, the right to life and liberty the legal aid we were also talking about the abolishment of the mandatory death penalty sentencing here in Malaysia if you miss any part of our conversation today you can always search for the podcast at bfm.my slash learn you can also find it on the BFM app this has been Law & Behold on The Bigger Picture BFM 89.9
1: You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9 The Business Station for more stories of the same kind